Welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast, where we help nonprofits reimagine generosity and put the joy back in fundraising. Hear from leading nonprofit fundraisers and marketers as they reveal strategies for strengthening donor relationships to propel your nonprofit forward. Hey, everybody, this is Gabe. Welcome to the Virtuous Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have Beth Guggenberger with us. Beth is the co executive director of Back to Back Ministries. Back to Back is doing some amazing stuff in the orphan care space. Um, Beth is leading the organization. She's also a prolific author, um, speaker, and mom of 10. So, Beth, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into back to back, which is super interesting, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit just kind of about your your personal story, um, your family, how you ended up um, passionate about adoption and foster care. Yeah, I did not grow up with adopted siblings. I'm not even sure I knew anybody who had done anything like that. But I fell in love with, um, through Young Life. With, with my husband who uh, we went to college together. And then I used to say my major in college was campus crusade for Christ, which is not a major, but <laughs> through my uh, involvement with crew, I got on a lot of airplanes and went to a lot of foreign countries and really my heart was captured for the nation. And so after graduation, um, Todd and I began to pursue our professional careers, but always in the back of our minds, we knew that there was this mark on our hearts for vulnerable children and for um, international ministry. So in 1997, we moved to Monterey, Mexico for what we thought would just be a year. We were living off of a savings account and just wanted to learn the language and build some relationships internationally and put our big toe in that water and see what God might want to do if we would build a bridge between folks who needed whatever it is that we thought they needed at the time, support, love, attention, resources, and people who had that in spades. And when I look at the last 21 years and what God has done, I certainly never traveled there imagining what would eventually unfold. It really just simply had a call in our heart and a burden for marginalized children. But um, as we entered into orphan care work that year, I did get pregnant with our first biological child, but I knew even though that we could build our family in those ways, that God was planting seeds in our hearts for, for kids who didn't have families. So um, my daughter was born in May of 1998, and our um, first adopted child was born two months later in July of 1998. So those guys have grown up essentially as twins, even though they are two different colors. And that was the start of a family that has now grown to 10 children. And it just, it's, I think adoption and foster care is a calling. I don't think it's everybody's calling, but certainly as we have, you know, this is now what we do full time. And as we've traveled around the world and um, met kids, Anita families have just sensed several different times God asking us to step forward for a child. So I think we're all done, but you never really know. You just always keep listening for whatever the Lord has for you. And um, that, that's kind of how it all got started. That's great. Hey, can I know this is a little bit off topic, but I'm so passionate about the uh, adoption of foster care in general. You said it was is a calling. Um, but not for mm -hmm. everybody. So if I'm a family and just thinking about adoption and foster care, are there, or is there like, I know it's not this easy, but is there like a checklist of things that I should be thinking about? Like, how do I know if this is right for me? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, 
I usually encourage people to befriend a family that is also that has fostered or adopted and just kind of get into the nuance of what that involves. I think there's a lot of things we see on the internet or we see on people's social media that just paint one side of this adoption and foster care story. And there's all kinds of facets to bringing a child that's from a hurt background or who has a trauma history into your full-time family. And I think if you get involved and befriend and minister to and come alongside a family who's already doing it, they might be able to share with you kind of in real time the things that are total celebrations and the reasons that our hearts get full about it. And then the moments when kind of the rubber hits the road and it impacts biological children or it impacts a marriage or it impacts your finances and just making sure that somebody understands not only the benefits of adoption, but also the cost so that they walk in to that story with their eyes wide open, have all the right kind of perspective on anything the Lord asks us to do is always going to be worth it, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. And so I have wonderful adopted children and I wouldn't trade any of those stories, but um, they certainly are not all easy. And um, anyway, so that I would just say before you read any books and before you take any classes and before you sign up, on it, for any agency, I would just get involved in the life of someone who's done it and ask them, um, you know, what their journey has been like. Yeah, I I really like that idea. Um, in our experience with with us and other families around us who have done foster care and adoption, it is it is a hot mess, but it's a beautiful mess. But unless you're up yeah. close to it with other families, you it's hard to sort of put into words those how it feels, you know. And so I love that suggestion. Yeah, I, I, I say to my biological children or to some of our kids who've been in our family longer, I know that there's a cost and a benefit to the way we've chosen to build our family. And the mom instinct in me wants you to only experience the benefit and not have to pay any of the price. But I actually like who you're becoming. And I like the way that these stories are shaping and forming you and your view of the world. I wouldn't actually trade the cost because I like the result of it in our lives, but um, it's yeah. still good to be mindful of it. Oh, that's great. The, the one other thing in there that just, as a side note, um, we were, my wife and I did crusade in college too. And my wife, um, her summer project was San Diego. And this past week um, we spent the week in San Diego. So my wife could surf a little bit. So it's funny how the trajectory of both of our lives seems to be, very formed by yeah. our, our crusade experience in college, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. A blessing. That organization is a huge blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great organization. Well, tell, I mean, that I, I love your story and it's easy to see how back to back has been such a natural flow of your own personal story. Can you tell us a little bit more about just kind of back to back in general? Um, what you guys' mission is, um, how long you've been around, what you're trying to accomplish in the world? Yeah, for sure. Um, we're 21 years old, and we provide holistic orphan care in eight different locations around the world. And I would just say in terms of, I mean, that's certainly the vision. In the beginning, all we could see were physical needs. So, you know, we just started vaccinating kids and getting clean water places and putting screens on windows and better protein sources. and then. Then we realized we better make sure everybody knows this is because of Jesus and not because of any humans. And so we started to add spiritual um, strategies and just even communication with kids as we were meeting very acute felt needs. 
And that felt like the one-two punch for a while until we'd been there for a few years and we realized generational poverty is really broken through education. So we began in 2001 this project called the Hope Education Program, which was eventually takes orphans all the way through a bachelor's degree in the countries they live in. And then that felt like, well, this is definitely the secret sauce. We've got to meet felt needs and make sure they know it's because of Jesus and then get them educated. And then we graduated our first college graduate about six weeks after he had begun his first job. He came to tell my husband and I that he was quitting and we were like, why are you quitting? And he said, well, there's this guy, he follows me around all the time. And all he ever does is tell me what to do. And he's driving me crazy. <laughs> and my husband said, is he your boss? And he said, yes, I can't stand him. And we realized that frankly, we had educated uh, an emotional train wreck and he was incapable because we hadn't addressed trauma and emotional health in all the ways that we should have. He was incapable of maintaining a job or submitting to authority or managing relationship with adult men. And it was such a pivotal moment for us to realize feeding hungry kids is not enough. Telling them about Jesus is not enough. Getting them to school is not enough. It's got to have this more holistic approach to it. So then uh, we all got well-versed in trauma and how to address trauma needs and uh, hired lots of counselors and social workers and psychologists and all the different sites that we have to address that piece. And the, the final the final part of the development of our mission was really most orphanages around the world kind of function like tiny microcosms. They're like these little independent cultures that are in and of themselves. Orphans don't usually go into town and go to the bank or go to the grocery store because it's too hard to navigate that with the amount of kids and the amount of adults. And so then you release an orphan into society and they don't know how to pay taxes or volunteer at their church or go to a hospital for help because that's not the way their little community and culture they grew up in worked. And so we realized we really need to integrate socially uh, the kids that we were serving into a larger community if we want them one day to be leaders inside of that community. So today we do what we call the five-point child development plan, which is the physical and spiritual and educational and emotional and social integration of support into the life of a kid. And uh, we do that around the world. And of course, you can't live an orphan and love an orphan in isolation. You love their at-risk mom and you love their incarcerated father and you love the churches that serve them and the communities where they are birthed. So there's a, a whole community development aspect to the ministry that we, we now um, oversee. Well, that's amazing. I know um, part of that for you guys and, and, and the holistic care and, and kind of engaging the whole community and the whole person is, is great. But you guys do like mission trip stuff or work trip stuff yeah. there too, right? So, so how does that work and how does that integrate with what you're doing, um, the rest of the work you're doing? Yeah, we have about 2,000 uh, mission trip guests a year that travel to any of those eight locations. And I usually talk about mission trip guests as kind of, they, they on-ramp into an already well-moving highway. So there's full-time staff on the ground all the time that are in some way executing strategies around those five needs of the kids that are in that community. And when mission trip guests come, it's why I can't totally tell you what you'll do in two weeks if you come, because it depends on the needs that are occurring in the week that you're there. So we don't stop ground, the ministry on the ground in order to accommodate the guests that are arriving. We just use the guests that are arriving and the gifts that they bring, the resources and energy and skills and all of that to integrate into a kind of already fast moving river. So, um, yeah, it's, 
it's the way that we've kind of redeemed those short-term mission experiences. They were very pivotal to my husband and I in our, in our life. And I think can have great value, but certainly you can do them in a way that hurts the people that you're there to serve instead of helps them. So um, we've, we've worked really hard in the last 20 years to try to figure out ways in which um, to utilize the short-term mission guests. Um, so I, I love that the, you, you're using the word guest. <laughs> so intriguing to me why you're using that word can you tell me why you picked the word guest to describe the folks that are coming down there yeah we i mean uh, our organization is called back to back because we stand alongside of nationals who are doing ministry so our goal is always to find strong nationals who have a heart for the lord and to come alongside of them so in in all those ways you know they're at the center of the story they're the chief of the story they're the um, architects of those of the ministry site, the rest of us, even long-term expat staff, are guests in that country, and we we fold into instead of drive those agendas. So, um, when you're a guest, you behave in certain ways, you defer in a, in certain ways, um, you find yourself in postures of being a student and not a elite a director. So, we we want our guests to come and learn as much as they can about the culture and about the needs and about um, what's being done, and then take those under that new understanding back to their home countries. But yeah, they're very much a guest. Wow, like that, it, it just resonates so much um, with so much of the work we do with other nonprofits, but then so many of the short term mission trips that I've been on, it seems as though um, part of the most destructive thing potentially about short term mission trips is kind of the savior complex of you seeing yourself as the smart, capable savior. And, and yeah. you effectively strip away all the dignity of the people you're trying to serve, which is, yeah. um, which in reality, they, they probably have far more to give to you and not in some sort of existential, you know, I can learn from their poverty kind of way, but actually they're probably a lot smarter than you, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. that gets yeah. totally lost. And so using the word guest to flip that around, I think even that one little word seems so powerful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It needs to be an exchange. And I think that's, that's really hard. It's actually hard for our short-term guests to consider the exchange because they're just so there to give of themselves, which I appreciate that. But when we don't allow what the child or the national to exchange with them, then it actually says, you have nothing to offer me that I want. And there's something undignified about that. So we really look for that healthy exchange between two people that God brings together for purposes that we hope we have our finger on, but it's always more than we can ever imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I want to jump and change topics just a little bit here. You're, um, you're a speaker and author too. You've written, what is it? Maybe eight books. You're out on the road speaking uh, quite a little bit. A lot of that is around the idea of storytelling. So tell me a little bit about what you do as a speaker and author but then tell me how that idea of storytelling influences what you're doing at Back to Back. Yes. So um, I've been writing books for a little more than 10 years. And um, I speak currently about 100 times a year wow. in front of all kinds of audiences of all sizes. And I think storytelling, what happened is we would have these short-term guests that would come and I would want them to to put themselves inside of experiences that they've never had themselves and probably never would have themselves. But I was hoping to conjure up in them things like empathy and generosity and understanding 
And so the best way that I could figure out to do that was to paint a picture and to do that through story. And when I think about my learning curve in the beginning, if I was going to be honest, I probably had things I wanted people to know. And I was looking for a venue for them to, to hear my ideas on what, what I thought they didn't know and that they needed to know. But that, that's actually pretty prideful. I have no idea what people who are in an audience of any size know or don't know or experience and don't experience. So um, in 2007, I had written a book for Zondervan called Reckless Faith, and I was wildly naive, and it only lived in the hard drive of my laptop. I had never put it on a jump drive or emailed it to myself, and 10 days before it was due, I had had my laptop in a car where I was writing, and I jumped out of the car for like one minute to tell my son where I was parked, and someone smashed the window of the car and stole that computer, and, the, and it was gone. The book was gone, and I told Zondervan, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do this. I didn't even have time to do it in the first place. I'm so sorry. And they reminded me I had signed a contract and I absolutely had to deliver on it. So I sat down to rewrite that book the second time. And I realized the first time I wrote it, it's about what I thought the world needed to know about the things I was seeing. The second time I wrote it, it was what God had taught me and it was far more compelling. So where in the beginning I was like, oh my gosh, the enemy took this book in the end, I ended up feeling like it was a branch that needed cut off. It wasn't going to bear fruit. And and that's now how I tell stories. It's not so much what I think everybody needs to know about what it is that I've figured out. It's more about this is what this experience, this person, this story that I'm telling you, this is how it's been transformative for me. And I am going to trust that you as a listener or you as a reader can make build all the bridges between my story and your own life. And it's we just, we just hear things better when they come in the form of testimony than when, when they come in the form of, I know something I think you don't, I need you to learn it from me. So that's now how I frame um, the stories I tell. It's more like, this is, this is how this person or how this experience has impacted me. Yeah. It's more compelling. Absolutely, it is. It's so powerful. We think a lot about trying to shorten the distance between um, like a donor and then what's actually happening in the field. And a lot of times when not nonprofits talk about themselves or even give stats or tell you what they're doing, um, it, it creates this idea where the donors like this, they just give money and the nonprofits, the intermediary between them and the good in the world. But it, for us, we've seen storytelling as a way that shortens that distance to make the, mm. the donor feel like they're actually caught up in the story. They're implicated in something bigger than themselves and they feel actually a yeah. part of it. So I think in particular with fundraising, that's just, it's so powerful to not just wrap somebody's mind, but wrap their heart around it by making them feel so they can connect the dots for themselves effectively. Um, how do you guys, how are you guys using storytelling right now, even within back to back? Are you intentional about how you write copy, how you create media, how you talk about yourselves? Yeah, for sure. We have um, like a brand pyramid and we know that our stories are going to be helpful in nature. So that was a decision in the very beginning to not talk about what man wasn't doing, but instead to talk about what God was doing. I know I could get a reaction by saying, you know, there's this thing going on and essentially something like if you don't step up nobody will and I need you right now but that, that's not true God can meet his needs any, and he can do whatever he wants whatever he wants with whoever he wants we get the privilege of getting in the middle of it but he doesn't actually need any of us and 
And maybe if I tell you a terrible story or show you a picture of a, you know, a child with a bloated belly and a fly on their face, I might get some kind of guilt reaction from you, but I don't want that. I want relationship and relationship comes from, um, hearing like God is on the move here and this is what he's doing. And I really want you to be a part of it. So we, we definitely have some filters that stories get put through. So we make sure they're, they're hopeful in nature, that they're invitational in nature, that they're honoring to the person that we're telling them about. Um, that there was big, long, healthy conversations. And, and frankly, one, I think when I think about my own learning curve, there was definitely a large season when we began the organization where I sell donors as transactional. Like they were like, I need your money to do what I want to do. And so I'll say and do and dance in front of you in whatever way I need to until you spit out of your ATM machine, what I need to go take care of the kids that God really cares about. Mm. And there was a big conviction in my heart probably 10 years ago when I realized that God actually loves the donor in every single same way that he loves the vulnerable children I was serving. In fact, he sees them no different from each other. So I could literally double our ministry impact if I began to minister to donors and with the same compassion and heart and intentionality and strategy that I was ministering to vulnerable children. And when I realized that donors are loved in the eyes of God in the same way that vulnerable children are, then all of a sudden we started to tell stories different. We started to um, think about relationship different. We started, it, 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 it was a big shift, certainly in my, my heart and mind and then really eventually in the organization as a whole. Yeah. Man, flattening that out, and it's so hard to do, but it's, it's so important. There's so much unhealthy stuff. I think like what you were talking about with stripping away dignity. So it's telling pessimistic stories of the kid with a fly in their eyes strips away human dignity. So you stop seeing those people as, as peers or someone like you, you start seeing yourself as a savior in the same way nonprofits do that to donors where they think about them as a checkbook and it strips away the dignity of the donors and it's not a true story at all. And so, but mm -hmm. in our, in our culture and the nonprofit culture in particular, we've thought about donors as checkbooks and thought about kids with flies in their eyes for so long. It's kind of, it's sometimes hard to roll those ideas back. Um, so I love that you're trying to do it. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's Go kingdom. Ahead. It's like, it, it feels then like kingdom building, yeah. like with a capital K and, yeah. It, and not, yeah, it, there's something, there's something that really just clicks and I don't know, it, it actually stops feeling like work at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know you guys at different points, um, as you've tried to tell your story, um, and raise money and make an impact. You've used broadcast media, you've used publishing, you've used books, a bunch of stuff to raise awareness for back-to-backs. I know some of that's worked really well, some of it probably not so well. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the lessons you've learned through some of those experiences? Yes, probably my the biggest fail, since that's really the most interesting <laughs> of it all, is um, I had a radio show on XM Radio for a couple of years we had a really great slot on a really great station. Um, I had really compelling guests, like kind of all the raw ingredients were there. Yep. Um, but what I, what I was hoping for was to use that radio show as a way to expose more people to the ministry and then eventually drive them back to our website or to child sponsorship or to mission trip guests or to some entry point on that. 
And um, we just didn't end up seeing a return on that investment. But simultaneously, I was loving the radio show. So there was this hard part inside of me where I had to decide, like, do I want a hobby? If I'd like a hobby, keep it up with the radio show. But if, if I don't want a hobby, then this medium is not giving us back what it is costing us in terms of time and energy and mind share and, and relational capital and all of that. And so I think for me, the lesson has just been constantly evaluation and having my hand loosely on even ideas that felt kind of cool, frankly, you know, and probably the, um, the most successful ultimately tool that we've had is, is publishing. Um, the books that I've written have allowed me to interact with people without standing on a stage in front of them or without being on a telephone with them. And I really, I, when I wrote that first book, Reckless Faith, the concepts behind that book is like, Hey, Reckless Faith took me across the border and into an orphanage, but your Reckless Faith could take you across the street or it could take you into a classroom. It could take you like all roads don't have to lead back to me in order for it to be successful. And the more broader we painted that message, like get engaged, say yes to God, raise your hand, lean in, sacrifice. If you have nowhere else to do it, come find us. But if you have somewhere else God's calling you, go there. We've actually seen more kind of bang for the buck without that direct marketing hardcore. We're the best. We're the, this is what makes us unique. This is what makes us better. This is, you know, some of that traditional marketing that just mm -hmm. is constantly mm -hmm. with the lens of how to set ourselves apart while simultaneously probably putting down other models. Um, that's not really been successful for us. Kind of the, the we're one in a large family of people that are reaching out to vulnerable children. And even to the point where, if we have a contact with someone and they, we, we, are, we currently don't work anywhere in Asia and we find out like the impetus for their interest in orphans is because they have an adopted Chinese niece, we'll even tell them about organizations we know that are working in China, for example, that are doing really good work. And it's just a kingdom thing that we've seen. It actually bears more fruit that way than we're the best or the strongest or the fastest or the smartest come here and nowhere else. So yeah, it, it, it was, it's just been an interesting learning curve for us. Yeah. Well, it's such a hard thing to learn. Um, Chris Horst, he's a, does fundraising at Hope International. He's been on the podcast before, but he always talks about um, admitting failure. So he, as a fundraiser, he's shockingly quick to refer you to another nonprofit or admit when they screwed up, which is, yeah. which is amazing to me. Um, especially when you think about old school fundraising, those were just no-nos. The pie is fixed. Like we see everybody else's competition and we never admit when we screwed up, even though we screw up all the time. And so, but in today's world that you, what you build trust and authenticity, you, you collaborate and partner with people and you actually have a bigger impact in the world. Um, and so that it seems so counterintuitive, but I think especially in a day when people don't trust institutions as much as they used to and people sort of get relational signals or signals from relationships more than they do sort of big ideas and statistics. I just, I think those are incredibly powerful concepts. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that you were skeptical of people who, who just really only report on successes. It, it, 
plus if donors want to get involved like they need to know what's not working or what's not going well so adam you know they can pray they can utilize their expertise they can network with us they can problem solve alongside of us like that just further engages them versus shiny powerpoint presentations and all is well and i fixed this so this looks like it's better than it really is but it, I, i don't know it, when we're telling one story this is really hard work and it's constantly a battle and it's always opposed yeah. it, it just sounds like a di- it sounds like dissonance to say but meanwhile everything we do is just perfect <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know one thing, just even thinking about, is communicating different with donors in particular, um, more relationally, less of that kind of old school direct response. The the world is ending and only you can help. Um, Part of that is in how you think about new donors. And I know a lot of times you've you've said the on-ramps for new donors are, are too big. Um, what do you mean by that? And how do you think about um, not just acquiring, but but um, sort of introducing a new donor to your organization? Yeah, you know, I think for us in the orphan care space, there's just a lot of examples of people who've done some extreme things, like sold everything they own and moved to Africa or adopted a bunch of special needs children. And <laughs> it tends to have like this awe factor, like, like in order to really make a difference in that space, I've got to do something that's like really impressive. And I, I just think it's a disservice. I think there's a lot of invitation. There's a lot of steps people can take beyond kind of those on a scale of one to 10, those 10 level decisions. And I, I, I'm always thinking when I'm telling stories or fundraising, how to give people places where they're comfortable putting their big toe in or making a minor investment or really the money is, inconsequential what we've really invited you into is relationship and we're just happening to use this campaign or this you know whatever this ask is as a way to get you into this family now that you're in the family now you can understand what this looks like but my goal is not really your $35 a month or my goal is not really your one-time gift my goal is relationship and we'll use this as a tool towards that so that we have divided in our organization audiences in four categories. And so these are not external documents. This isn't something anybody would normally see, but we, we talk about an audience is either curious, interested, ready to be educated or at the advocacy level. Mm -hmm. So curious is like, you know, they know somebody that knows somebody that's done something with us or they read one of our, my books or something. They're like, just kind of curious. They don't even know how to spell our name. They don't know where in the world we are. And the goal with someone like that is just to take them from curious into interested. Like we're in orphan care, we do holistic care, and this is where we're at. And then what, when we interact with someone who has some of those basic facts down, our goal is just to take them from that place into a role where they would want to be educated on why it's important to do orphan care that way and what, how do we learn those hard lessons and like what's the current thinking and where are we getting our understanding from. And, and then once we kind of give people that piece of education, then it's time for those advocacy level asks like sponsor a kid and go on a trip and get to this campaign or whatever. And we, we were finding that sometimes our very first interaction with people was basically an ask, some kind of advocacy ask. And they're like, I don't even know who you are. Why would I mm-hmm. like, and, and I, we were talking about in real relationship, you, you have all these intermediate steps where it's like, it goes back and forth and you learn about them and they learn 
about you and they get to ask questions and then you get to a place where you've kind of earned the right to say, would you like to be involved with something like this? And so why would we be putting out social media posts or email campaigns or stand on the stage or, or put out magazine articles that just right off the bat assume an audience is ready to put some skin in the game. It doesn't make sense. So we now have targeted communication for each of those four categories and a whole communication strategy that makes sure that we, we don't just err on advocacy because that's where we want to land and we kind of shortcut that process. Yeah, I mean, you, it, the, it's funny. The, everything you just said is like it's singing from our, our songbook and our playbook. Uh, there's a couple of great implications in there. I could talk about what you just said all day, but um, one of the implications is you actually know your donor, right? Or you know, and, and I'm, I'm using the word donor, I should use the word giver, meaning, um, or, or anybody who's interacting with you and that you know who they mm-hmm. are. And I think um, people spend so little time and effort and they don't really have a mechanism to really truly know who their people are because you can't invite people in or the next step if you have no idea who they are or what they like, mm-hmm. or how much they know about you or or what their interests are or their passions or their giving capacity. You don't, you don't know any of that stuff about them. And so uh, my example I always give is you walk up to somebody uh, a cocktail party and what you don't start with is just blasting them with cool stuff you know what you do is you ask them questions like hey where are you from what are you into you know and then they say you know bowling and so then the next few minutes you're asking them questions about bowling and you start a conversation around shared interests and passions and you see where it goes that's how relationships work but the implication mm-hmm. there is a nonprofit you have to actually work hard to like actually know your folks um, you have to have tools in place and a culture in place that values actually getting to know your folks. The other implication in what you said, and I'll shut up after this, but is that um, you could, somebody can go to the, the, all the way to the advocacy side of what you said and not yet have given you money or maybe even never give you money. Maybe how they're best wired to serve you isn't actually a check. Maybe it's, yeah. you know, being an advocate on social media. Maybe it's it's uh, arranging a, a trip. Maybe it's, I don't know, there's 800 ways. Maybe it's doing adoption foster care themselves. And so having the freedom and openness to think about generosity much more holistically than a $35 a month gift ask is so important in that process. So um, I yeah. those categories that you set up, I think, are just are hugely valuable. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so we're, we're kind of running out. Of, there's a couple other questions I wanted to ask you, but we're running out of time a little bit. Um, uh, one, just to hit before we get to our lightning round is, uh, how are you guys using technology at Back to Back to recruit new donors, to get new volunteers, to arrange mission trips? How do you guys think about technology overall at the ministry? We have a great technologist that's on staff with us who's, who has been constantly teaching us like old dogs, new tricks, everything from Google tools that we didn't understand all of its capabilities to, um, I mean, all kinds of ways. But I would say in terms of new donors, social media has been a big tool for us. Um, we have someone dedicated to our social media strategy and who does a good job um, 
cultivating a community that we wouldn't normally have access to. We do use constant contact and do have some targeted email campaigns depending on, um, you know, different tags and places either people have visited in the past or, um, so we, we, we have email signups and an email database and we use um, certainly that and we hope to create compelling enough stories and information that people forward those on to their own networks. We try to make them as shareable as possible when we create them um, with that goal in mind. Um, and then again, thinking about that education piece of those four categories, we really want to give people the kind of information that is helpful for them in their everyday lives, not just Tell them, educate them about what we're doing, but educate them about things that we're learning that might be helpful for them. So that's pretty easy for us to do in our space since we're learning constantly about child development and about trauma and the brain and healing and listening and all kinds of skills that are pretty applicable to people in their lives that have nothing to do with back to back. So we try to share some of that learning and um, insight in those tools. So again, that people would keep them, print them, save them, share them, those kinds of things. Yeah. That's great. And that's using, just using technology to express your culture, which is like, how can we, how can we be generous to our donors or people that are following us, people that are interested in us? How can we give back to them first before asking for something? I think great content, great storytelling, social media is, a, is just a really good way to do that is to give value away before asking for anything, which is perfect. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Okay, so we're gonna end real quick with our lightning round. Um, it's how we finish all of these things. And so, um, are you okay if I just hit a couple of questions for kind of quick yes, one last? Sure. That's great. Um, so first one is, uh, what's your favorite technology? You already talked about back-to-back -back a little bit, but what's your favorite technology just for your personal use? Oh, probably Zoom. <laughs> you know, video conferencing with people in other parts of the world we use. Uh, mobile devices and video conferencing to make, you know, to, to, to unite a multi-generational and multicultural staff. Yeah, I love Zoom. I'm a, I'm a Zoom addict. I love seeing people's faces. I think you get so much more out of like talking to somebody and seeing their face and the fact that tools like Zoom enable that's just amazing. Um, okay, a uh, recent Booker podcast. Um, that inspired you something in the last year or, or more than a year is fine too, but what book or podcast has really gotten you excited lately? Oh, one of our cultural values as an organization is learn. So it's probably better to say in the last month because we are all listening That's to awesome. podcasts and all reading books all the time. But um, recently I have gotten into Peter Scacerzo. He's the emotionally healthy spirituality author, yeah. pastor out of New York. Um, he has a bunch of leadership uh, podcasts on emotionally spiritual, emotionally healthy spirituality, which is really important that we continue to all grow up in our faith um, while we lead and manage. So I like uh, what Peter Scazzardo has going on. Uh, I'm currently working my way through The Divine Conspiracy, which is not for the faint of heart, but it's a book um, by Dallas Willard that yeah. um, is teaching me how to ask good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Dallas Willard is a monster and that, that is an amazing book, but you're right. It's like, this book is long and then you open it, you're like, Oh my gosh, that print is tiny too. And these words are so big. <laughs> but it's yeah, I'll be on that. I'll be in it for a while. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, okay. How do you find balance, especially for you? My gosh, a hundred speaking engagements a year, eight books. 
10 kids and executive director of an organization, how do you stay sane? Do you sleep? I mean, what do you do to keep yourself <laughs> grounded? Um, I usually reject the word balance and I replace it with rhythm. I have rhythms and some of those rhythms are fast and some are slow. And if anybody sees me with the, my best foot forward at some moment, it's because I've dropped something else. So if I'm doing, if I'm knocking out of the park professionally, don't look at my house or if I look like I'm like mother of the year right now, it's, my inbox is crazy. So there's just, it's just about for me managing rhythm and understanding, mm. you know, w what that looks like. There's a verse um, in Matthew that talks about how God gives us an unforced rhythm of grace. And I just try to think about that, just try to maintain a calm presence, regardless of all the things that are kind of going through my mind or going on around me. But I would say probably the biggest, gift I have in all of that is my marriage. Um, Todd and I call our time together at night, our deepest breath of the day. And we, we really um, intentionally spend two hours a night every evening wearing no other hat, but stuff. So we don't parent in those two hours. We don't work in those two hours. We don't manage our household in those two hours. And there's a cost to making that kind of intentional time, but the benefit is way outpays the cost. And yeah. the, the marriage that I experienced is, is probably what makes that rhythm manageable. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, um, I always say I, I'm not much of a, a balanced guy and I would be horribly unbalanced, but my wife and kids, um, mm -hmm. don't think I'm that big of a deal. Like they don't care that I hosted a podcast today. My four-year-old daughter certainly doesn't. And you know, no. and my wife in particular is great about saying, you know, I love you, but you're acting crazy. Like, let's talk about that. You yeah. know? And so there's just something amazing about that for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Family keeps you grounded. Yeah. Well, Beth, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure just getting to hear your story. Um, your, your ideas around um, fundraising, uh, building relationships, how you think about donors, how you think about um, giving dignity to the people you're serving. Are, are all amazing but honestly I think people are going to enjoy just hearing your story too and so thank you so much for joining us today it's been a pleasure you're welcome thanks for having me yeah absolutely we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the modern nonprofit fundraiser the podcast is brought to you by virtuous the CRM and marketing automation software helping charities raise more money and create more good be sure to rate and subscribe. For more resources, head to virtuouscrm.com.